Welcome to the Brute Facts Podcast with your host and everybody's favorite Christian, Eddie Kroon. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the channel and hit that notification bell for future content. Welcome to Brute Facts. Got a fun one tonight, just like I always say. Thank you, Pasta Mike, for uh, doing that wonderful, professional-looking intro. Um, you can check him out over at Normalizing Atheism. He has his own channel now. Pretty high-class, state-of-the-art kind of editing. Uh, tonight, I have Ben Watkins, um, a philosophy friend of mine. Um, we have talked for years now um used to have it out quite a bit uh but that was when he was more of a new atheist and i was a bit more ignorant in philosophy so it was fun times good guy now um so he is with real atheology and i am going to bring him on and let him tell us a little bit about himself How's it going, Ben? I cannot hear you. All right. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you. Uh, look, go to. Yeah, go to your. I think where it says Cam and Mike, and then audio, and see what your output is for speakers, and make sure it's on. Oh yeah, he can't hear me. Let me. <laughs> can you hear me? I hear you. Yeah, one second. Sorry, folks. Live show stuff happens. Um, let me, I'm going to bounce him out real quick and see if uh, I can get him set up. It was working before we started. I'm not sure why it's not working now. Uh, let's see. Can you hear me now? I can I hear can you. Can hear you hear Okay. Do you have some yes. headphones? Okay. Do you have some headphones because they're, they say that there's a pretty bad echo on your end. All right. Is there, do you guys still hear an echo in the chat? Test, test, test. Do y'all still hear an echo? Anybody in the chat? Echo. Anybody? Echo. Echo. Does anyone still hear an echo? Well, nobody's responding. So I guess they're not hearing no an echo. You what? Yeah. Hold on a second. Let me check over here. So, guess they're not here. Yeah. Hold on a second. Let me check over here. Okay. They're saying it's good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's try this again. Welcome, Ben. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. Sorry about that. No, it's all good, man. It's that's the thing about doing a live show is we don't get to edit it out. Uh, so <laughs> we just kind of roll with my last show. The guest cut off at his computer crashed with like just a few minutes left in the show, right in the middle of a nail hanger. 
So, or a cliffhanger or whatever you call it. Um, sure. Yeah. So, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. You used, you were a Christian and became an atheist. What made you kind of make that transition? Um, yeah. So I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, so in a um, conservative uh, Quaker like um, home. So we, um, I didn't go to a uh, traditional church uh, as a place of worship. We went to someone's house um, as more of a Bible study setting. And so it was about after I graduated from college um, that I started to say, okay, well, what, you know, I, I had come of age, so to speak. And, you know, what was it that I really believed as, as far as my serious theological beliefs? And, um, how was I going to live out the rest of my life? Um, you know, was this the sort of consideration? And so that's when I kind of got into apologetics and philosophy of religion. And so really what it was, was just kind of struggling with doubts. I started asking certain questions and I started to be um, dissatisfied with the answers that I was getting to those questions. And the more I started to probe at certain questions, the more I started to think that some were just insoluble. Um, and so eventually I just kind of came to realize, I was like, okay, I think I'm just in the atheist camp. I kind of went through, it was a progression of, um, uh, you know, I wasn't, uh, um, a Christian. I was, you know, maybe a Buddhist or, um, some other non-Christian tradition. And then I kind of had a deist phase and then I had kind of an agnostic phase where I was just like, well, I just don't know. And then it was, you know, I finally got to the point where I was like, okay, I think when when the, when the evidential chips have fallen, this is where I think um, the weight of evidence leans towards is, is a um, rejection of perfect being theism. And so one of the things that I wanted to do with my Real Atheology project was to approach these big questions and issues in the philosophy of religion from a perspective in which we have already rejected theism. So the idea is that if you've come to the conclusion that something like perfect being theism is, is false, what can religion look like afterwards? What does it mean um, for something in the world to be worthy of our worship? Um, what are the functions of things like faith or prayer in our lives if we've already rejected something like that? Can we still believe in something like life after death or morality or rationality or all these different things, you know, what does it look like once we've already um, rejected perfect being theism? And so instead of a project in which I contrast with something like the new atheism, the, the idea is not to, to, to bash on theism. Um, it's to contribute substantively to the dialogue and to try to develop um, this particular position in the great debate the great debate. So it, yeah, I try to take a more serious and balanced approach to um, criticism. And I also take more risks when it comes to putting ideas out there. Yeah, that's, and that's what I like about, you know, uh, about talking with you, especially these days, uh, it's far more pleasant, but uh, yeah, I mean, you weren't that bad. It, it was, uh, just a lot of us kind of new to philosophy, kind of, you know, bouncing off each other. And um, <clears throat> so would you so now would you consider your are, are you more agnostic or would you consider yourself a strong atheist or 
where do you kind of land there? Um, so I consider myself an atheist. So um, what do I, you know, mean by that claim? What could it, what would it look like for a claim like that to be true? Um, and so I start with the idea of a disembodied mind. And so I'm an atheist in a broad sense in that I don't believe that there are these disembodied minds. In fact, I think that we have good reasons to believe that there aren't minds such as this. And I'm an atheist in a much narrow, narrower sense, too, in that I reject the particular theisms of the Western monotheisms, perfect being theism of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So I'm an atheist in the sense that I believe that picture of the divine is false. Um, and so I have pushed back a lot on what has um, often been called the laxiest definition of atheism, this idea that atheism is just this lack of belief in theism. And I think that that, we already have a term for that. It's non-theism. You're just not a theist if you just lack the belief that God is. Um, I take a much more um, substantive position in the philosophy of religion in, the mean, in, in that I, w I want to say that the claim theism is true, that that claim is false, and that the claim atheism is true, that claim is true. And that I mean something very spe specific about, you know, that claim in at least two different senses, this wide sense of a disembodied mind and this more narrow sense of a perfect being. Those are both conceptions right. um, that I believe are false, but not necessarily for the same reasons. Yeah, that's and when I'm talking with uh, different atheists from different areas, I, you know, kind of just get their idea of what, you know, they think atheism is. I know a lot of people, I mean, I, quite a few uh, will still say, you know, it's just a lack of belief. And I, I just don't get into, you know, arguing about that because I know what I know what they mean by being an atheist. Um, and for the most part, I think uh, a lot of the newer atheists, you know, don't realize that, you know, at least as far as I'm familiar in the literature, um, that it's really a, po a positive proposition, you know, to be an atheist. It's, you know, a theist is God, is one who believes in God. So the negation would be, uh, you know, or theism, theism is God exists, the negation would be God doesn't, uh, which, you know, for the most part is a positive proposition. But I don't, to me, I, I don't get into, you know, arguing with, a lot of atheists, what, what they mean by it. So, um, you, I have watched you kind of, uh, evolve through, um, I want to say uh, you, you were Humean at one time, weren't you? Uh, well, so I, in certain respects, I am a Humean. Um, yeah, so but David Hume has been very, very influential on, uh, how I think and, and the objections that I take seriously. Yeah. Hume, <laughs> And then Kant and I have uh, uh, made my transition to the dark side complete in transitioning to Hegel. So uh, it's uh, there's definitely uh, been a trajectory from Hume to Hegel that and now that I'm kind of on this Hegelian end of it, I'm like, how did I get here? I don't I don't understand. I don't understand this. 
I wonder, I wondered the same thing, you know, with this Hegelian views, because, uh, you know, that's these uh, that's continental philosophy, right? That's uh, the kind of it's not really it's not analytic. Uh, it's really just it's well, one of those. So, so if you had said this claim, uh, you know, twenty years ago, you would have been spot on. You know, it would have been this idea that, uh, or m- maybe more like thirty years ago, but it was this idea that Hegel was kind of this relic of the past that was relegated to this continental traditional philosophy. But uh, Hegel has had something of a resurgence since the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties. So, in the analytic tradition. Um, Though he is still widely despised and something of a uh, very small minority among analytic philosophers who really even take him seriously or think that he has anything interesting to add to something like the analytic tradition. Yeah, it's funny because it's, uh, you know, if you want to be uh, a philosopher to be remembered, you know, just be as abstract as possible and then have about 15 books written about what you really meant and that's what i've seen about there's really some irony here because um i consider myself an analytic in the sense that i was brought up in the analytic tradition i write in the analytic tradition i work in an analytic tradition and so i put a, a great deal of emphasis on clarity and brevity of thought and those are just not Kant and Hegel. Like, how did I end up in this camp? Like, how is it that I was, because when I, when I started my philosophical journey, I was very much um, opposed to the Platonic, Kantian, Hegelian uh, part of the tradition, the rationalist sort of, and perhaps that was bias from, you know, reading, you know, I started my journey with, uh, Bertrand Russell's A History of Philosophy. So I'm sure he poisoned the well a little bit there. Um, there's There might be all kinds of reasons why I just had this, you know, I just didn't get them. And now, if you were to ask, you know, like Plato, Kant, and Hegel are like the figures that um, I turn to, and Hume as well. They're just figures that when I'm developing my own thoughts, it's just very easy to reference them. It's very easy right. to use their material it's very easy to just pick up the themes that they gave us and examine certain questions in very interesting ways. Um, and so while I don't agree with any of them on everything, certainly not everything, um, there's, there are certain themes to each thinker um, that I really appreciate, that I think that were very revolutionary in the history of thought in thinking about these in that they shifted the way in which we think about some of these these questions. And I think there, you know, people ask, does philosophy make progress? And I think the answer is yes. It might be rare. It's not the same um, yeah. same way in which something like the natural sciences make progress, but it does make progress. Our concepts do get better. And those and that process of doing it is what drives, I think, things like the natural sciences and history. Right. And things like economics. I think all of these things built on human humanities. The you know the humanities are built on these sorts of uh, types of inquiry. So yeah, and uh, I've talked with you at length, even preparing for a debate. Of, you know, 
um, with ethics. And that seems to be an area that you enjoy the most. Is that kind of still, you still do a lot of the uh, ethical philosophies or? Oh, absolutely. So um, I started my journey in philosophy as a whole in philosophy of religion, which is just a great place to start your philosophical journey because it touches on so many different areas. And one of those areas was moral philosophy or, or what's called ethics. And so while I was going through this philosophy of religion phase, I was also had entangled with it this moral philosophy phase where I really got into um, questions of applied ethics, of normative ethics, and of meta-ethics. And um, trying to articulate my own view um, because I had certain intuitions that I had worked with and others that I had kind of worked away. You know, I was like, you know, I thought, you know, okay, I think this might be the case. And then I worked through those intuitions and realized that they were confused and mistaken. And then I worked out other intuitions. I was like, okay, I think these are the one, you know, this is where I think things are going. Um, and so really developed within the philosophy of religion my own way of approaching what I call um, the moral or what is what I call what is often called the moral argument for the existence of God and its relationship to um, an atheological argument, the problem of evil. And yeah. so um, one of the themes that you'll find in apologetics discussions is that the status of morality becomes quite a focal point of discussion. Um, a lot of things are said to turn on this idea of um, the status of morality, whether it um, has, has a subjective foundation or this more robustly objective foundation. And so the answer to that question is supposed to have really, really big um, implications for the philosophy of religion for both sides. The theist wants to argue that um, this idea of an objective morality, this idea of having a, a real, um, a realist view of morality is going to require something like God, whereas the a theologian is going to say, look, because there are these things that matter in the world in this robustly objective sense, this implies that there is no perfect being, because if there was a perfect being, you know, there wouldn't be these kinds of um horrible evils that we observe in the world. And so the idea of the relationship, the intersection of this dialectic, that's where I found myself most interested in the sense that I think there's um, a wide range of ways in which someone in like in my camp, who is um, a secular, more realist has a lot of room to, um, affect the dialogue to really come in and help us see certain things from uh, interesting perspectives. So, for example, a famous to, to come back to Plato, um, there's a famous dialogue called the Euthyphro dilemma, and so there's controversy within the dialectic between apologists and atheologians of whether of what exactly. Um, the Euthyphro Dilemma is and what exactly the implications of it are. And so I give a secular realist interpretation of the Euthyphro Dilemma. And so I think that my way of characterizing the dilemma and teasing out the implications of it are 
better than the apologists' um, approach to it in trying to split the horns of the dilemma and to insist that it's a kind of false dilemma. So I think that I've um, provided at least some useful tools um, that I have gotten from elsewhere within um, my moral philosophy um, journey to, I think, can help us understand um, what's really going on here and why our conception of ethics should shift um, away from this theologically voluntarist idea of morality and more towards a more robustly objectivist reason implying conception of morality. So yeah. the idea here is that the disagreement is conceptual. It's not merely that we, we're having a semantic disagreement. It's not merely, merely that we're having a theoretical dif- disagreement about the um, implications of certain theories. It's that there's a conceptual difference in what we think morality is. And so you're going to have to compare what these, you know, how these two concepts approach these big questions. And so I found a lot of really interesting and I think fruitful conversation and dialogue um, to be had there. Yeah, that's um, on my, I mean, in my opinion, in my experience, uh, I am less inclined to use any kind of moral argument for theism because I, one, I don't think it's real powerful. Um, two, there are so many different, uh, you know, secular explanations for morality that I find, you know, at least on the surface of it, you know, plausible, there's enough, uh, explanation there, you know, that, um, without really going into, you know, some, an argument about grounding and things of that nature, uh, I think are, you know, perfectly rational positions. So I don't, uh, I don't often use the moral argument. Of course, and I'm not an apologist. I consider myself a philosopher in philosophy of religion. You know, I don't like, I don't care for going around defending uh, or trying to convert people and things like that. I mean, somebody asked me what I believe and why I tell them, and that's kind of, you know, my position. So, uh, although I do like to debate time to time, that's a little fun. Uh, so, um, I know you were a categorical imperative guy for a while. So where have you kind of settled at this point? Um, yeah, so I'm still kind of a categorical imperative uh, guy, but the idea is, what do we mean by a categorical imperative? Do we mean exactly what Kant says about a uh, categorical imperative, or do we have some sort of um, a better idea, more improved idea? And, and I am to the of the thought that um, we can have a concept of a categorical imperative and the idea that we can say that um, moral obligations are categorical. And so what do we mean by that? I mean that um, anyone in a particular situation, if you could put any other subject in that position and they would have the same moral obligation. So it's this idea that um, morality is something that's self-imposed. So it's autonomous. So you give yourself principles that you could that you could also at the same time will to be a universal law such that everyone could rationally will 
this principle. And so that's, and so what that means is that this principle applies to anyone in a similar cir circumstance. So morality doesn't discriminate between moral agents. If you're a moral agent, if you can appreciate a moral reason not to do something, that reason applies to everyone exceptionlessly. It doesn't mean that there are no exceptions to our moral rules. That idea of a categorical imperative I don't think is workable. But the idea that morality applies to every agent in certain circumstances, regardless of who the agent is, I think that's the essence of a categorical imperative. So what would so the, the, the million dollar question is, well, what would something like a categorical imperative look like? And I think it would look something like the idea that we should always treat someone in a way that they could rationally will. If you ever treated someone in a way, if, if they could not rationally contain the same aim in which you're using to treat them by, then it would always be wrong to treat someone in this way. And so, and it would be wrong for anyone in, the, in a similar situation to treat someone in that way. And so a simple example could be something like torture. Um, someone could not rationally contain the end of being tortured for its own sake. So um, it would be, it would always be wrong to torture small children for fun. That would be something that would follow from the categorical imperative because the, the principle don't torture children merely for fun is a, is a, is a principle that everyone could rationally will. It would apply to any moral agent capable of appreciating it. And so that's what I think we, we mean by a categorical imperative and what is essential to something like morality. It couldn't be the case that um, I would be morally required to do something in a certain situation, but you were not morally required to do something in the same situation with the same non-moral facts, only our positions were switched we would have the same moral obligations. Similarly, um, there would be no moral um, distinction between a divine moral agent and a finite moral agent like us. So it wouldn't be the case that God just didn't have moral obligations on this view. My view implies that no, a categorical imperative implies that even God has moral obligation. If it's wrong for us to torture children merely for fun, it's wrong for God torture children merely for yeah, fun right absolutely yeah that's you know and it, with a lot of people that try to you know um instead of understand like the old testament in its context you know they try to justify how it's okay for god to do certain things and we're not allowed to do them and i don't even you know i don't even get into uh those kind of arguments uh because you know i kind of lean towards you know like what you're saying that i mean if it's objectively wrong it's objectively wrong you know i don't think that there are you know certain things like torturing people for the fun of it that could be justified by anybody even a, de a deity you know so it doesn't make any sense to me but um <clears throat> so kind of shifting gears from there um the uh when you went to you kind of inherited relay theology didn't you correct wasn't it yes like it was justin that it was justin ran... schieber so justin yeah. schieber it was the project um that kind of dovetailed 
Um, he was also part of the Reasonable Doubts uh, oh, um, okay. podcast project. And so when he you know, kind of went off to do his own project, it was Real Atheology. And so he and I met um, online years ago. I, I couldn't tell you what year we met yeah. each other. But we met each other in person in 2016 at uh, the Reason Rally in Washington, D.C., and we really hit it off in the sense that we were both really into philosophy of religion. And we um, were interested in doing these sorts of projects. And so I was familiar with him through his Real Atheology project. And he was familiar with me, um, kind of. I was, I guess you could say, up in the uh, philosophy of religion circuits, up and coming, in that you know people were starting to pay more and more attention to the things that I was arguing about and the positions that I was skeptical of and the positions that I was defending. And so he brought me on as a co-host um, because he wanted to expand um, what was originally um, kind of a, a YouTube um, channel type thing into a more uh, sophisticated um, podcast um, format that was also conversational. So the idea is that we wanted to interview people from all sides and to see how we could make progress on certain issues in um, the philosophy of religion, both historical and current, um, right. because we felt like that that was really missing um, from the atheological camp. Um, the new atheist projects don't typically take these sort of things on um, more likely than not, because they think that it's just not worth the time to do it. Um, and we are just, a, that's, that's just how we distinguish ourselves from the new atheists. We think that it is something worth doing and that it is important, um, to be informed when it comes to the big questions of not just the philosophy of religion, but just in an area, any area of philosophy, um, where the, where the questions matter, where the, um, the questions are connected to living a good life or, living an examined life. It's um, These are the kinds of perennial questions that we have to take seriously, even if we disagree with the answers on the other side. Um, there's there's work that needs to be done, and there should be places to facilitate um, the conversations that people should be having. Yeah, absolutely. That's, um, I mean, I've actually, uh, with us being in the you know, same groups, same circles and stuff, I've seen where you've actually, you know, posted like uh, arguments for God and interacted with those arguments. And uh, I think it's, it's pretty cool that you, you have somebody out there who's, because I, you know, I'm a Graham Oppie kind of person. I love the way that Graham Oppie comes, you know, at philosophy of religion and uh, shameless plug. He's going to be on my show. Um, but, uh, <laughs> he, uh, it's that charitable position, you know, where we have this human condition. Every, everybody's a human. We all have our different subjective experiences. We all have our own kind of epistemology and how we come at, you know, things that we know come to believe and things like that. And I think, you know, working within that framework and being more charitable, towards each other, you know, from the deist side too. Um, it just, it makes for great, you know, conversation. It makes for uh, progress in philosophy, at least conceptually, you know, where we can try to refine and hone 
you know, the ideas that we have and, you know, teach other people uh, ways, better ways to think and to accept things like that. So um, that's definitely something I enjoy about you and quite a few other of the, you know, atheists that I've been, uh, you know, friends with in philosophy of religion for quite a while is the charitable approach to it and uh, wanting to actually interact with these different arguments and things. So um, when you took over, uh, it was, it was Ben before there to begin with, or did he kind of come in and help you or I don't remember. Yeah, so, um, when Justin Cheever decided, uh, to step back and, you know, um, pursue higher education and kind of, you know, go a different direction. Um, I brought in Ben Bavar and, uh, John Wapolito, um, as co-hosts and, uh, John Lapolito has also since uh, uh, left the project to focus more on family stuff. Um, and so I have since brought on uh, my good friend, Ryan Downey. Um, oh, yeah, I like Ryan. Yeah, so Ryan Downey is um, kind of our um, third partner in crime. And then we've got a couple people that are um, working behind the scenes as well that uh, – don't really uh, help out so much as far as hosting the show, um, but more in the, just the research we're doing. So really it's kind of a book club. Um, my yeah. project is a, yeah. a, is a book club that draws from uh, multiple pools of people. And then we just put in podcast form um, the results of that book club, you know, kind of like what things were interesting, uh, were interesting to us and what areas of dialogue that we have that we find interesting and put them out there for other people to dialogue about and um, reflect about to see if, you know, because, again, we, we think that this is uh, we don't have the new atheist uh, approach of being like, you know, there just there is no evidence for God and there are no good ed- arguments for God. Like, look, there are certain considerations that could be considered evidence for God and there are super interesting arguments for God. And there's um, just even thinking about them. Um, in general makes us better thinkers in general because it, it challenges us in certain ways. So to give an example, I'm getting ready to um, do a discussion with my good friend Travis Worth on the fine-tuning argument. And so in preparing for that discussion, I'm, you know, I'm an engineer um, by uh, career. And so my degree is in engineering. Um, I took probabilities and statistics. Engineering. 15, yeah. I took it 14, 15 years ago. So it's certainly very, very rusty. So going through all this stuff again has uh, refreshed me with probability theory. And so I feel like it's, it's like riding a bike again. I'm starting to, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And like, I'm finding myself being able to read certain things much faster um, and I, whereas before I was having to stop and look certain things up and, or stop and think about, you know, the relationship between certain con, you know, concept, okay, well, this refers to this concept and it's related to this one, this one. Now I can just kind of read it naturally. Um, and so that it has to be good for at least that. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> I, yeah, I, uh, I actually, even at my age, I just, uh, enrolled to, complete uh engineering degree mechanical engineering because that's what my uh, undergrad is is we're a strange breed for sure that's yeah it's uh (laughs) but i've dealt with 
you know, I started out in HVAC and then went over to working on battery backup systems for data centers. So I have a lot of electrical background and mechanical back- background. So it was natural. And I was hoping to maybe be able to flip over and pursue philosophy, you know, once I get that secured. So, um, but enough about me. Uh, with the, uh, so uh, I want to, I do want to come back to that fine tuning because Dra- Travis had said something about it in the chat. Um, but, Something interesting that you said that I would like to, you know, really make it good and clear. And that's one of the things like uh, when I'm talking with, you know, newer atheists and things like that, it's, you know, I try to get them to understand, you know, you you don't have to say there's no evidence for God. You, you can absolutely admit that there are, there's possible evidence that some things may seem to point towards a God. And that doesn't really, you know, harm your position nor give credence to, you know, the other position if you are, you know, so reluctant to consider that side or came from that side. Um, so if you what would you think? I mean, in your opinion, what is the uh, strongest arguments for theism? Um, looking at it from, you know, your point of view? So um, from my point of view, I see the arguments for the existence of God in a broad category of different arguments that are all themselves have families of arguments. Um, And so the ones that uh, are most often cited are the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the ontological argument and the moral argument. And I think that the ontological argument is a completely useless piece of natural theology. So I've been pushed pretty heavily on this. I just, I don't think that the the ontological argument is really a serious piece of natural theology. And (laughs) um, now there's plenty of people that disagree with me and they think that I'm just, I move too fast in my criticisms of the ontological argument and that I should take it more seriously. And so I'm trying to get there, but I'm still just of the opinion that this, this just isn't a good argument. It's, it's, it's a nice, it's a neat little philosophical paradox. We get a lot of value from thinking about it and discussing it. And it has an important place in the history of philosophy, but as a piece of natural theology, as something that is going to be appealed to, to resolve disagree disagreements between disagreeing camps, I don't think it's going to do that. It's just yeah. I had it. Joe Smith on. Yeah, I had Joe Smith on, and he did a fantastic job of illuminating quite a few issues with it, which I'm not a big fan of it anyway. I do understand. I mean, there, I have you know interacted with it and read lots on it because I was intrigued by it. But even if you're convinced by it, it's extremely n- unconvincing you know to be other people because it just it, well, you, it really you know that it's apparent like you're you're being you know there's a mistake and you might not be able to point exactly to where the mistake right. is that's how most people the phenomenology of this argument goes is they're like okay there must be some sort of trick here it feels like I'm there that, yeah <laughs> um now while i think that the moral argument is not sound i don't think it's uh in this and it's can be re- very closely related to ontological arguments and be mistaken for similar reasons that ontological arguments are. Um, I think there is something very natural about the idea that um, 
God plays some sort of essential role in morality or that there is, you know, there is an, an, an inherent plausibility to the idea that um, a, a moral law requires a moral law giver. Now, granted, that might that plausibility might be you know, merely, merely rhetorical, but it's it's plausible in a way that God is so great that he just must exist, just isn't plausible. Um, so I think the moral argument and the ontological argument are dead ends. Um, and I think that if we're going to be serious natural theo- theologians, that our um, focuses should shift more towards the cosmological argument and the teleological arguments, because I think that that's where the more interesting arguments are in the sense that they have the potential to resolve disagreements between disagreeing par- parties. We could, in principle, with these sorts of considerations, say, okay, I think that the weight of evidence falls clearly in this side or in this side. So when it comes to cosmological arguments, I'm most sympathetic to arguments for contingency. This might be the influence of Hegel on me in the sense that um, I find something like the principle of sufficient reason. Um, I'm sympathetic with it. Um, although I also recognize that there are serious challenges to the principle of sufficient reason. It may or may not be true. Or there might be a, a weak form that's true and stronger forms that are false. Um, there's super interesting discussion around that, but I think it's um, the idea that the universe has this necessary foundation. Now, I think there's problems going from a necessary foundation to God, but I think that this is an area in which you the, the conversations are interesting, it's not obviously mistaken, and we could potentially see a paradigm shift here. If the work here were to progress in such a way that was so compelling, perhaps there is a paradigm shift to be had here. Um, the other area that I think we can have that is in teleological arguments. Teleological arguments have um, kind of had something of a resurgence lately because Darwin really kind of just did the damage to the teleological argument in the 18th century and uh, or 19th century, I'm sorry, and early 20, certainly the first half of the 20th century. Uh, the cosmological argument was the philosopher's argument par excellence. But now the teleological argument has made something of a comeback, um, partly because of um, things like the modern uh, resurgence of something like intelligence in design, but also because of the fine-tuned data, fine-tuning data that we have discovered um, with the physical constants and initial conditions of the universe. And so what I think is the most interesting teleological argument um, is a variation of the fine-tuning argument. But it doesn't stop with the idea that the universe is fine-tuned for life. It says that, no, the universe is fine-tuned for moral agents that can make significantly free decisions um, that have moral consequences within a much larger moral arena. And so the idea that there are embodied moral agents that can causally influence the uh, moral arena in morally significant ways um, is not something that you would predict on something like nat- metaphysical naturalism. But we do have some antecedent reason to think that we a world like that would be created by a perfect being who cared about um, having a, a, a morally significant relationship with their creation. 
So I think that this is one area in which it's not obvious that it's wrong. And I certainly grant that this argument that I'm putting forward um, liberally makes use of um, premises that others might challenge, the idea that we are libertarian free agents that can make morally significant decisions in the moral arena. This is ex you know, explicitly assuming a libertarian account of free will. And some people, most philosophers are not libertarian incompatibilists about free will. They're compatibilists. So I admit that there's there, there, there are areas in which this um, argument can seemingly be attacked pretty heavily. But on balance with the other teleological arguments that I've encountered, you know, like ones that's focused specifically on the uh, constants or ones that appeal to something like an irreducibly com irreducible complexity, like the ID theorists like Behe do. Um, I just, I think this moral agency argument is just, it's, it's, it's just a better argument. I think that if we're going to have a paradigm shift, um, back it to in favor of teleological theological arguments, we're more likely going to get it here than we are in something like intelligent design in the biological domain or just focusing on um, life and the physical constants. Um, I think there, there are problems with those formulations and we can kind of smooth over, smooth over some of those problems by shifting the focus to rural agents. Um, yeah, but that's, that's where I think the most promising argument is. It's the one that I think about the most. And so I think I think about it the most because I think it's the best. <laughs> yeah, that's and it's funny because you and I are almost dead on par, you know, because a lot of people who know me have often heard me say, you know, if I wasn't convinced by, you know, the truth of Christianity, I would at least be a deist. And the reason being is because of the modal contingency and mainly the modal contingency argument and the um, uh, fine tuning argument, more like along the lines of what Luke Barnes presents, um, focusing on, uh, you know, the fine tuning for carbon life and not so much the intelligent design argument. Um, I'm just, I'm not a big fan of the, you know, intelligent design biologically, the irreducible complexity and those things. I just, uh, I just, you know, that almost seems like, uh, you know, a Texas sharpshooter fallacy, you know, it just, uh, we're looking at these things. We're, we're organic creatures that uh, look for, design and things all the time we look for patterns we look for these kind of things so um but given that yeah i'm right there with you the the cosmological arguments to me uh mainly contingency argument and fine-tuning are the most powerful in which would i would at least be a deist if i wasn't a christian but i'd like to know um what you you were talking about the moral agency from teleology. Can you touch on that a little more? Um, so the teleological argument is um, synonymous with design argument or the argument for the design. And so why do they call it the teleological argument? And they call it the teleological argument because it's 
Um, there is seemingly order or goal-directedness in the world. It seems like there is something in which the world is aiming towards. So this idea of aiming towards something um, is telos, um, the Greek word telos, meaning aim or goal. So the teleological argument is trying is looking for some sort of goal-directedness in in the world. And so the idea that there's life is something we take for granted, but there um, is also intelligent life. You know, life didn't have to be intelligent. It could just be life, uh, just all non-intelligent life. But then there's also um, not only intelligent life, but life that can appreciate moral principles and can ask itself the question, um, what ought I do? And can give more or less true answers to that question. And they can affect other people in ways that are morally significant as well. It could have been the case that there was life, intelligent life, but it wasn't morally significant intelligent life. There is morally significant intelligent life. So it seems like there's this, this idea of um, progressively um, goal-directedness in the sense that with the universe is us slowly waking up because the universe tended towards us, beings like us, and we are slowly awakening from this essentially teleological process, and that this teleology is driven by God's desires, God's wants, God's goals. He sees the te- the te- you know moral agents in the moral arena are the telos, and his desires and intentions or aims. Are, are directed at them, and he causally influences the world in ways to bring about that aim. And that God's um, creative acts in the world are what explain why there's this order rather than some order, some other order, or disorder. So that's no. the idea. That's my fun, that's my fundamental understanding of what a teleological argument is trying to do. And so the telos on the argument that I most sympathize with moral agency sees that moral agency and that moral arena in which we we focus in. So I don't necessarily think that the constants being fine-tuned are evidence for theism, but we can say on something like single universe naturalism, where there's only our observable, observable universe, we can say that, look, these conditions are very, very, very improbable. And so that's still a very significant claim. That's still something yeah. that can that can that can move yeah. the scales. Yeah, it's yeah, especially if you know uh, something like a multiverse theory, you know, was true, or we found some type of evidence for it, then it would definitely put a significant blow to just the fine tuning aspect of it. Um, so does that is that would that be something that could Maybe. tie in? So that's 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 I think that's one of the more interesting uh, areas of that particular discussion, and one that that atheists don't necessarily engage with, like they should. So the the multiverse, as I understand it, is the idea that um, there are many different causally unconnected universes, and so there's the idea of well, life permitting constants and initial conditions are likely in some universe. It has to be the case because there's infinitely many of it. 
But the question that we're trying to, to address in the probability calculus is why does our universe have the constants that it does fall where they do and that range is narrow? Why is that the case rather than something else? And I don't think the multiverse can explain that. I, uh, it, it just, yeah. the, 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 the datum that we get from the multiverse, the idea that some universe is fine tuned, isn't the datum we need. The datum we need is our universe is fine tuned. And why is that the case? It can't yeah. just be because, because some universe is. Then we'd have to add something like an, uh, an anthropic principle in order to get there. And so if we're already taking into account an anthropic principle, then we've already opened up a whole nother bucket of fish. We've, we've, we've opened up the idea of observation selection effects, but right. I won't, I won't yeah, get not, into all that. Yeah, I, not only that, I think it, the multiverse theory actually uh, tends to just kind of push it back a little bit. Anyway, we still have other issues you have to deal with when it comes to the multiverse theory. So what kind of, well, um, do you mind taking a question? We actually had somebody in the chat that wanted oh, to sure. Please. ask yes. a question. Yeah, Titan uh, wanted to know, could morals not be derived from empathy chosen for, like chosen for by evolution because intercooperative species are generally more successful than purely competitive species? Okay. So this is a really great question. Um if only for the reason that it helps me make, I think, a very, very crucial point, a point that I would I would like to get across to people. So this question itself assumes a particular view of morality. So it, it, the question was, can't we just derive morality from em empathy? So that's a loaded question. That's that's assuming that morality is that is derived from empathy, that it's something derivative, derivative of something else. So me yeah. as an anti-reductionist, I believe that morality is primitive. So we can't just derive it out of something else. So if we're saying, if we're talking about empathy, we're talking about motivating reasons. We're talking about human psychology. We're talking about the causal connection of how it makes people act so if you're asking the question can't we have moral motivation that's derivative from empathy the answer is yes but the question i think is more can we have moral justification that's derivative from empathy well if you're like me and you believe that moral justification is objective and doesn't depend on anything subjective you're not going to derive moral just justification from empathy. Empathy is a sub subjective characteristic. Morality is objective. So empathy can be right or wrong. So I could be empathetic towards Hitler, and I could be not empathetic towards someone like Mother Teresa. That empathy would just be mistaken because I might be morally motivated, but I'm morally motivated in ways that are unjustified. Or that are morally objectionable. So yeah, that's the I. Go ahead. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, that's that's kind of along the lines of the responses I usually give when people talk about, um, you know, given evolution and more uh, morality and moral obligations and things like that. 
you know, because somebody says that, you know, you have a moral intuition or um, you, you feel that you should do certain moral things that still doesn't tell us, you know, what morality is and why it's objective. It just says, hey, you know, it, it may have been pragmatic. It may have been something that did possibly develop, you know, through evolution and things like this. But it doesn't tell us what morality is. It doesn't tell us why there's this objective nature to it. Uh, so it doesn't, you know, it's not really explaining, uh, in my opinion, what, you know, moral duties or moral obligations are. Uh, because like you said, with, you know, just intuitions or empathy or things of that nature, uh, we all have, you know, different intuitions to a certain extent or, you know, empathy to dirt different to a certain extent. And there's being objective like it is if one person's intuition or the empathy, you know, combats with another's, then how do you distinguish between the two if it's not an objective moral fact? So, yeah, the um, get getting from there to uh, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about um, where they can find you with real atheology. I was going to put the YouTube link, but it doesn't look like you guys do too much YouTube stuff anymore. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> I, and, and being as, of course, I you will understand completely when I say being as ADHD as I am, I forgot to ask about a website link for the podcast. So where can they find you uh, where you are the most active? <laughs> Um, so obviously our Facebook page is where we're the most at our Facebook and our Twitter, I should say, um, real atheology, a philosophy of religion podcast. Um, obviously you can find us as well on Podbean or Apple iTunes. Um, pretty much wherever your favorite podcast is found, we're, we're on that platform. And so, uh, the past year or two with the pandemic and all the things that have been going on as well, we've. Um, shifted our focus more towards interviews like this, uh, debates and discussion than we have been on interviews. But hopefully we're going to be turning that around here pretty soon um, to do to put more content out there. Um, we were doing a Thomism project. Um, it's been going on for about two or maybe even three years now. Um, so it was a really, really big project. So we finally, I think, um, wrapped that that up. So we're uh, probably going to be doing some new and exciting things here in the next year or two. Sweet. Yeah, I'll definitely be looking forward to that. Uh, I catch, you know, some of your stuff time to time, kind of feel a little obligated at least, you know, kind of, you know, tit for tat for a while. Um, so the real important question is, what are you listening to on your iPhone right now when you're not on the interview? Right now, when I'm not on my interview, so I'm listening to at least three different things right now. So um, the first thing is I'm re-listening to uh, We Are Legion. Um, it's a series from the, from the Bobiverse. Um, I'm reading that. I'm reading uh, Robert Nozick's um, Anarchy, uh, State, and Utopia. So it's um, a classic in the canon of political philosophy. And I've I've read a lot about it, and I'm indirectly familiar with it, and I'm finally getting around to finally listening to it. Um, and then I'm rereading uh, Daniel Dennett's Consciousness Explained. Um, again, it's a it's a it's a staple in the canon of philosophy of mind. 
Um, and I read it very early in my journey on the phone. Yeah. Going back to reread it to see, okay, can I get something else from this? Because um, in the philosophy of a mind, like in philosophy of mind, like in moral philosophy, I'm also in the anti-reductionist camp. Um, yes. So I Thank find you. myself um, in disagreement. I'm in the John Searle and Daniel Dennett have a famous exchange of debates between the two of them, and I'm I find myself fairly clearly in the, the John Searle camp. Not the biggest fan of John Searle as a person. Um, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, um, uh, that's, that's a topic for a different day. I've actually yeah. been watching his lectures on semantics, trying to... He's really smart. A- He's probably the most influential philosopher of language since Wittgenstein. I think he's absolutely brilliant. Um, Him and Chomsky are the two the mark, been- He misses the mark. When he misses yeah. the, when he when he misses the mark, he misses it by a lot. It's yeah. Really yeah, him and Chomsky are two of them I've been listening to a lot, trying to get a little more into the philosophy of language, you know, trying to learn because uh, you know, I cringe when, you know, people are having debates or things like that and somebody says, Oh, we're just arguing semantics. And I'm like, ah. Oh. That's really that is the argument. That's what we mean. That's what we mean when we're talking. That's what our claims mean. Like I really, it's a pet peeve of mine too. Like, it is. Oh, oh, that's just semantics. That's really important. That's that's what we're. Yeah, that's that's the biggest part of the debate is knowing. You know, you you got the semantics and the pragmatics of it. You have to know. You know the the what they mean by the statements they're making, and then what they actually intend by those statements, because that's. I mean, I think even with, you know, a lot of professional philosophers, you see so much talking past each other because it's like they're it's like, you know, you you have to clarify exactly what you mean and intend with the statements you're making. And as soon as I hear we're arguing semantics, I'm just like, oh, man. Yeah, that's that's those who know me know that I'm I'm a pretty big grammar Nazi and for, for reasons just like this, like it, it's, I'm one of those people that, uh, you know, I, I really, I, I process what people say. And when, when someone uses a concept wrong or says it, it I, I, whoa, whoa, stop, wait, what did you, That's... you know, there's, there's multiple ways in which I can interpret what you're saying and I need you to be more clear. And it's, it's not that it's not that we're just, you know, oh, it's a semantic disagreement. No, I'm trying to understand what you're saying. And there's multiple things you could mean here. Please be more clear. Absolutely. And, it, <laughs> and, and, and it, it happens all I got the time. A couple of friends. Yeah, I got a couple of friends in the chat now and they hate when they ask, they ask me direct questions that I just don't directly answer them. And I'm like, these some of these questions you just you don't ask a philosopher and expect well, an immediate and answer. Philosophers are aware of the conceptual confusion a lot of, on a lot of these issues too. Like philosophers are notorious for trying to make things more clear, but in doing so making things much more confused and muddled. Yes. And re- the reason that that's the reason that paradox exists is because most people are very, very conceptually confused about yeah. the questions that they're asking and the answers that they expect other people to be able to answer and to weed through those conceptual confusions takes time. It's very difficult. It's a skill that is developed over time. It's not something that you can just 
take a class on and the, just go do. Yeah, I, <laughs> I can't count how many times I've been asked. So why do you believe? You know, and I'm just like thinking for a second at the easiest possible way to answer it. And I'm just like, it's not a simple answer. It's, you know, it's going, yeah. we're, we're going to have to take, we're going to have to flesh this out. No, I just need to know why you believe. And it, it, it doesn't I, take this I'm elaborate an answer. I'm an atheist, but if I hear two people ask, does God exist? And one of them says, no. And the other one says, well, what do you mean by God? I'm more inclined, like, I want to hear with the guy who's, like, he's the one that recognizes, like, this is a big question. So it's really going to depend, like, you're uh, you're expecting an answer. It's the only way I can give you the answer that you're expecting in a way that's going to make sense to you is if we're using the same concepts. Mm-hmm. And maybe we are or we are. You don't know. It's right. one of those, it's, you know, philosophers Daniel Dennett calls them intuition pumps and philosophers, you know, they hear, they, you know, they know these potential pitfalls. They've seen them in the history of philosophy. They've seen them in, you know, play out in contemporary debates. And so when right. they, when they, they come up again, they go, Ding! okay, that, this is potential problems here. So be careful. <laughs> yeah. That, that in, you know, wait, wait for, uh, I mean, not, I don't know to what extent with you, but with me, when I got into philosophy, I mean, I knew nothing. So I learned to be really, really careful with what I say and how I, I say learning. it. I not only knew nothing, but I didn't, I was not even aware that I knew nothing. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, had, I had finished college. I had an engineering degree. I was like, you know, I've, I've got the base, all the base knowledge that I could need, I have at my disposal. And I can go, and so I just didn't even have that Socratic attitude. And so I started at the very, very bottom of the barrel and had to work my way up to try to, you know, because the discussions can get very heated. And, you know, when people first challenged me on my faith, I didn't respond in the best sorts of ways because I was just like, I I didn't really understand why people would be skeptical as they were of the beliefs that just seemed like I grew up again, I grew up in a conservative. Natural belief. Yeah. yeah. It was just, it's natural. It's just one of those assumptions that you just, you, you went along with unquestioned. And so then when it finally was questioned, it felt really uncomfortable. And so a lot of that journey was just learning to be more and more comfortable with the idea of uncertainty and that there yeah, are these big questions that are just bigger than where I am at right. the point, you know, the kind of mind I have and the point in time that I'm at, there are some questions that are just bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. You had that, uh, planning, uh, properly basic belief of, uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's, for another, that. that's for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because I was a, uh, up in here and just start bashing on you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, well, I actually was uh, considered myself reformed epistemologist for a long time. I loved planning. I loved the externalist position. And I've actually shifted in the last few years to internalist evidentialist. Welcome to I'm, the dark side, my friend. <laughs> that's uh, I'm a more of a Bayesian epistemology guy now. You know, it's um, I, I do understand, the uh, you know, the issues pointed out on I'm, both I'm sides. Giving you, I'm, I'm giving you a hard time, if only because 
I'm an internalist or an externalist, depending on the day of the week and in which phase I am. And, you know, it just it's one of those discussions that like I just cannot nail down. That's, and I sympathize uh, with both both camps. And so absolutely. I give I give people a hard time for <laughs> something that clearly applies to me. Like I can only throw a stone so far before it hits my own glass house. <laughs> do, do you know what bothered me the most about uh, externalism and reformed reformed epistemology? Um, uh, specifically was, um, the Christians who hold to a fideistic faith where, you know, faith is opposed to reason. It's just this, like this epistemic knowledge that you have without, you know, just getting from the Bible. I thought that it, you know, to me, it gave, I mean, it's not the main reason I got away from it, but it was one of the big, one of the big issues I had with it. It allowed them to be warranted and their, you know, beliefs that they had, because when you hold to, you can actually defend a fideistic kind of faith using reformed epistemology um, because of, you know, and of course it's not justified. It's just warranted a weaker claim on it. So that was one of the big things that I was just like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give these epistemic lazy people a reason to, you know, say that they're warranted in this, uh, this, this, idea of faith that they have where they just take things that the Bible says is true. And that's another episode too. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I moved well, over I, to the yeah, I could, you, you could really get yourself into a rabbit hole here if you're not careful, because this is where I bring Like, you know, how has Hegel been influential on me? It's trying to address these issues, you know, this internalist yeah. externalist discussion. And I think that Hegel has some really neat insights and themes to first these questions with, but again, we won't get into yeah. that rabbit hole. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where you're an externalist when it benefits you, and you're an internalist when it benefits you. <laughs> and I, and so I'm you, a skeptic. So the only <laughs> thing that I'm sure of is that skeptic is wrong. And so, like, I take my cue. For, so, my favorite argument in all of philosophy is G.E. Moore's hands argument that I have hands, and it refutes external world skepticism. And I absolutely love that argument just because I think it's the, the greatest philosophy troll argument. That's, and yeah, it's almost irrefutable. It's almost irrefutable. And I love yeah. it. And so yeah, I'm I, convinced that the, the skeptic position, but so I go, I, I think that externalism probably has really, really good arguments for it right now. And that internalism is was on the wane, but internalism is now, meeting those objections and putting forward some interesting stuff. So like, it's a really interesting conversation and I'm just like, ah, where do I end up on here? And so like, I don't really have anything riding on either camp either way. um, Other than like, you know, I guess if it turns out that internalism is true, I can just say, well, well, externalism, all these externalist views are false because internalism is true. So I guess I could, but I I guess I could have something riding on it in that sense. But, I just, you know, what's what's the right way to solve this puzzle? I, I haven't I haven't quite decided. Yeah, me and either. I'll change I've, my I've next actually, week. Yeah, they, I've actually heard people using G. E. Moore's argument, who's gotten people to deny their hands exist, and I'm just like, yeah, it's yeah, at that point I'm just like, okay, well, that's, that's, <laughs> now you're just playing into the troll's hand, like like that's exactly, exactly what the troll wants you to do. So you can just, you know, be a troll. (laughs) Yeah, there is no way out of the hole of solipsism 
So if you know you run into if you run into somebody that's a solipsist, just run the other way. Don't just just go. It's not worth it. It's it's a rabbit hole that's not you worth. You might want to be careful because uh, as plan to go once equipped. If, if they go, we go. That's right. <laughs> okay, because I actually made that joke the other day. I think it was on the last show. Because uh, the guy was, uh, he said he was borderline solipsist. You know, just messing around. And I, and it was, I think Craig that said that uh, if you're, you know, solipsist, please don't stop thinking about me because yeah. I'm not going to exist anymore. Uh, so I, I didn't of, realize. You asked me what I was listening to. Uh, one of the ones that I just finished. Um, again, I preparing for a fine-tuning discussion so i read planting goes re-listened to planting goes where the conflict really lies because he has an entire chapter in it on the fine-tuning argument and some of the okay i've read a reduced Uh, version of it but i i haven't read the the whole it's just way too much there for me so i read it um, early on so i don't think i took away the things that i needed to really take away with it so the reread was was very good i'm Really bad. I've got this whole stack of just unread books that I just have that I need to get through. And I just keep wasting my time, wasting my time. I keep spending my time, you know, rereading things. I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, I I should read the things that are new, but they need to be read. Why am I rereading things? But I just. Yeah, that's I'm with you. I, I, I think I have a record for the most started and unfinished books ever. And then I keep buying more books. Or more, my I mean, my Audible has about ten books I haven't finished listening to. I've I've uh, discovered that collecting books and reading books are two entirely different hobbies. It's exactly. <laughs> I gotta get that book. I gotta get that book. And I, I, there's so many. I I have I have spent extra money to get books early, but I then just not get gotten read until after when their regular release date would have been. And I'm like, ah, why did I do this? I, just, I used to think I was, I would see a book, you know, years ago, I'd see a book. It's like a hundred bucks online. I'm like, well, that's crazy. And I'm like, now it's like, that's only a hundred dollars. I need to get that book, you know? So, cause you know, some of them that are you know, 500 pages of almost a thousand pages, they're almost like textbooks and they just oh, yeah. wealth of knowledge. So. Well, I, um, I also have a, a comic book habit too. So that, that doesn't help either. Cause I, I have, I'm the same way with, you know, I got to get this comic and I've got, probably three or four boxes of comics that it just, I haven't read yet. And I'm like, oh, I'll get around, to, I'll, get around to, I'll, get to, I'll get around to reading those trade backs and I'll get around to reading that. And I just, I'm glad I never got kid. into that. Yeah, yeah. We, we didn't have comics when I was a kid. We were, we were in the hood. So, you know, the hood, there's not too many comic readers, but yeah. I probably would have done the same thing. I'd have been buying them to read them and they'd stay in the little package and, you know, I'd read the front and back or something and I'll get to it later. I'll get to it later. So, uh, but yeah, Ben, man, I am very thankful you came on to hang out with us. Maybe usually around an hour because my attention span, I know their attention spans, uh, got to be at least half as bad. So, uh, <laughs> tell us one more time where, uh, everybody can find you. Um, so real a theology, a philosophy of religion podcast. So look us up uh, wherever you like to get your podcasts from. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and um, follow, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. Um, hopefully we'll be getting some more videos out there pretty soon. I know we've kind of neglected the YouTube channel been here recently, it's, but uh, there's well, still good it, stuff it will return. It will return. Yeah. I, I just had a kid, so we're 
I've, I'm having to be very, very deliberate with all of my time. And so the, the content yeah. creation, yeah, the content creation part is uh, stretched thin. <laughs> that's, that's not your kid, Ben. It's way too cute to be your kid. So. I, that's what I said. I was like, how in the world did I help make, like, I made this kid? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Man, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I'd like to have you back in the future, maybe spend some time on an actual topic. Uh, oh, know, for sure. Just yeah, let me know, because um, even if it's a topic that I haven't done, I'm always looking for new projects. Um, I'm yeah. always making discussion briefs like these yeah. um, of just various topics. So hopefully I can help contribute um, in, in substantive ways. And hopefully that we can have a conversation that helps helps me put ink to paper. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, talking about it's a lot different than putting it on paper. So I'm with you all the way there. So. And you need each. You need, I need to write things down so I can talk about them better. I need to talk about things so I can write them down. You know, it's it's a there's some sort of vicious circle going on. In there. <laughs> I think it's got something to do with our ADHD, maybe something. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. We need to hear it 15 times, and then we finally get it. So then we find, yeah. <laughs> All right, bud. I appreciate it, man. I'm going to bounce you out and see them out. Thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. Y'all stay safe. All right, bud. Ben Watkins, Real Atheology. Uh, ben has been a friend of mine. Uh, I consider him a friend um, in philosophy for years now. Um, him, two of the biggest uh, atheists that I've had as influences in philosophy is him and Brett Abney, and Brett Abney was on one of my earlier shows. So if you haven't seen that show, you definitely want to check it out. He's a pretty genius guy himself. So um, Ben is a real smart guy. Go check him out over at Real Atheology. And I thank everybody for joining us tonight. Sorry for the technical difficulties earlier. It was one of those days. It's been one of those weeks. Um, we are going to have... Uh, Murder Shed Steve back to finish up the um, cliffhanger story that he was going to share with us. Uh, not sure when that'll be yet, but it'll be pretty soon. So appreciate you joining us. We'll be back, I believe, Tuesday night, 7 p.m. I'm not sure exactly who the guest is yet. I have somebody I think is confirmed, but I will release the information on it and you will know then. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys.